Welcome everyone to today's webinar, Pediatric Mental Health Chaplains and the In-Between. My name is Michael Skaggs. I'm Director of Programs at the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab, and we are very happy to have you with us today. And we're also grateful to the Pediatric Chaplains Network, who is sponsoring today's webinar. Thank you very much for your support. Let me just say a few words before we get started. Like most of our events, this session is being recorded as well as live streamed on our Facebook page. And so if you need to leave early or if you miss something that you want to come back to, don't worry. You will get a link to the recording as soon as it's available. And then we also post it on our YouTube channel and the website as well. When we send you that link, that email will also have a survey in it that you can fill out uh, about your experience here. So please do just take one or two minutes to fill it out. It doesn't take very long. That helps us plan future events and make sure that you are enjoying our webinars. So with that, let me introduce today's speakers. Uh, first, we have the Reverend Anoma Abairatne. Did I get it right? Yes, you did. Uh, who is staff chaplain at Franciscan Hospital for Children in Boston. Kristen Canavera is a clinical psychologist at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And then finally, Fatima Watt is Director of Behavioral Health Services and Anoma's colleague at Franciscan in Boston. Thank you all for joining us. Fatima, let me turn it over to you. Wonderful, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, so I am Dr. Fatima Watt. I'm a clinical psychologist. I am the vice president and the director of behavioral health services at Franciscan Children's. Um, currently, I oversee the outpatient mental health services. I also oversee our school-based services. We have um, 20 social workers, 22 social workers now in 11 Boston public schools. And we also have a psychiatrist um, who travels around to the different schools and provides services directly in the schools. Um, and uh, we also provide behavioral health services on our inpatient medical unit. So I've um, personally always been very interested in mental health. Um, in the community that I grew up in, I saw a very high need for mental health services. So um, from even my middle school and high school years, I sort of knew that mental health was um, the path that I was going to take. Um, in my training, I've specialized in the intersection between physical health and mental health. Um, in our clinic, we treat children as young as 18 months, and we see the full range of behavioral and mental health conditions, including autism and developmental disabilities. I would probably say that about um, a third to half of the kids that we see in clinic have autism or an accompanying developmental disability. Um, we see a lot of anxiety and depression, a lot of trauma. And then we see um, children and adolescents that have serious and persistent mental health conditions. So these are um, conditions like bipolar disorder, psychotic disorder, schizophrenia. Um, so we were very busy before the pandemic, and I don't even know if there's a word to describe what we are now. Busy seems like uh, an understatement. So I want to start out just by providing some general statistics about the pediatric mental health crisis. Um, half of all mental illness begins by the age of 14 and 75% begins by age 24. So focusing on pediatrics and children and adolescents definitely makes sense because we can start to see signs of mental illness um, in even young children. The CDC reports that 20% of children in the United States have a diagnosed mental health condition. Um, that 20% equates to over 8 million children. That is a lot of children with mental health struggles. Um, 
in Massachusetts, an annual average of about 60,000 adolescents age 12 to 17, that's about 12.4% of all adolescents experience a major depressive episode in the preceding year. Um, that's in my state alone, Massachusetts. We're talking about 60,000 kids in a year having a major depressive episode. Before the state of emergency was called in Massachusetts, there were about 15,000 weekly emergency room visits on average, according to the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. Weekly emergency department visits for suicidal ideation in youths 24 and under averaged about 330, and there were about 55 weekly suicide attempts. Wow. After the state of emergency was called in Massachusetts, the average weekly emergency room visits plummeted to about 8,000. People were afraid to access the emergency room. We definitely saw that um, in the beginning of the pandemic. There were a lot of families that were boarding at home that really needed to be in a hospital and they were terrified of COVID. And so we have a crisis where we have a lot of children with mental health needs, but the other side of the crisis is the amount of mental health needs that are going untreated and the amount of need that is going unmet. And the consequences of an untreated mental illness can have a negative lifetime impact on a child's future ability to be a productive member of society. So a few more stats to sort of highlight that point. Half of teens with a mental illness drop out of high school. This is definitely something that we see quite a bit in um, clinic kids that are disorganized, that have trouble concentrating, that have social difficulties, who find school very overwhelming and who aren't getting the proper supports and accommodations are way more likely to drop out of high school. School refusal is a significant mm -hmm. issue um, that we deal with um, in outpatient and inpatient programs. And during the pandemic, it has gotten so much worse. Mm -hmm. um, and I could spend hours just talking about that topic alone. 50% um, of people with a substance use disorder have an underlying mental illness. 70% of youth in the juvenile justice system have an underlying mental illness. And one of the most terrifying statistics related to youth mental health is the suicide rate. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for youth ages 10 to 24 second only wow. to accidental deaths. And we don't really know how many of those accidental deaths were actually a suicide. I've had young children, children as young as four or five, tell me they have intentionally thrown themselves down the steps because they were so upset. Do they know the word suicide? No, but they intentionally tried to hurt themselves because of an emotion that they were feeling, that they were overwhelmed by, that they were not able to cope with. Kids as young as four and five, that is scary. Um, more youth ages 15 to 24 die by suicide than all medical causes of death combined. When you take all the kids dying of cancer, all the kids dying of other rare conditions, genetic conditions, there are more youth between the ages of 15 and 24 that are dying by suicide than all of those other conditions combined. And, and, and LGBTQIA plus youth are almost five times more likely to attempt suicide in comparison to heterosexual youth. And all of those statistics were before the pandemic even started. 
right now we are exceeding we are seeing extremely high rates of depression anxiety trauma self-injury and suicidal thoughts we're also seeing a lot of school refusal like i mentioned earlier and we're seeing a lot of separation anxiety now this was something that i anticipated um, from younger children, we have a lot of literature on what stress looks like in kids and younger children um, are definitely more likely to regress and more likely to have problems separating from a caregiver. What was more unexpected for me was seeing the rates of separation anxiety in adolescents, seeing a number of adolescents just having extreme fears about leaving the house, having extreme fears of separating from their caregiver. And this is especially true for kids of um, parents on the first line, whether it's police officers, ambulance drivers, nurses, physicians, parents who are leaving the house, their kids um, seemingly had much higher rates of anxiety and much more concerns related to separation. Um, our wait lists have exploded, um, and we're also working really hard to make sure that we're supporting parents, right? So kids don't exist in a vacuum, and so um, that's the difference between working with kids and with adults. When you're working with kids, you really are working with the whole family, mm -hmm. um, and we recognized pretty early on in the pandemic that the more we were able to support parents, um, the better off the kids were functioning. Um, parents who were able to deal with COVID and deal with the consequences and sort of pivot and be flexible and still sort of manage things in a confident and calm way. I don't know who those parents are, but those parents um, generally did a lot better than the parents who were anxious um, and just having difficulty coping on their own. And so we really worked hard to create a space for parents to be together with one another. We have mom's groups, we have dad's groups, we have mom's groups for kids with mental illness, we have mom's groups for kids with medical conditions, um, because the more we're able to take care of parents, the better off the system functions together. So as you can see from the statistics, there's a lot of work to be done and there is room for professionals from a range of disciplines, including chaplaincy, to support these young pe people and their families. Um, there was a high need before the pandemic and there will continue to be a high need for years to come. Recent data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that beginning in April, 2020, the proportion of mental health related emergency room visits for children ages five to 11 and ages 12 to 17 increased approximately 24% and 31% um, respectively from 2019 figures. We're talking about a huge increase in emergency room visits. I was recently talking to a school administrator who said at least 50% of the school, of the children in his school were now experiencing some sort of mental health challenge after being away from school for a year and a half. So the full scope of consequences from the pandemic are really yet to be seen. Um, I've had some amazing experiences working with chaplains, um, and I think that 
continuing to build up professionals in different areas is really going to be what's needed to beat the mental health crisis. There's not going to be enough social workers or psychologists or psychiatrists in the world to be able to meet the need. And not everyone um, who is struggling with their mental health needs someone that's a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Some of these kids need a safe and stable nurturing relationship. Some of these kids just need someone to listen. Um, so many of the kids that we are supporting um, don't have nurturing relationships. They're coming from broken homes. They're, they're dealing with trauma themselves. Their families are dealing with trauma or have serious mental illness. Um, and so being able to connect with an adult, with a chaplain, not just for spiritual support and guidance, but just to have an adult who genuinely cares about you, who is interested and who is sitting there and is willing to listen, that can go so far for a child's treatment. And not just in the moment that you're with them, that interaction, that calmness, that sense of safety that they had can stay with them and carry with them to the next placement, to the next place they go, to the next family, wherever is next on their journey. Um, and so never underestimate the, the power or the value that you have when you're sitting with another person. And just being able to listen and to be empathic um, can go a really, really far way. Um, having an opportunity to be heard by a caring adult can literally be life-saving for some of these children and teens. Um, so I, I'll stop there. Um, thank you for letting me speak and I will pass it along. I think Anoma, you're up next. I think Kristen is up oh, next. Oh, I'm sorry, Kristen, you're up next. Thank you. It's, it's, it's good to be here. Hopefully you can all hear me. Um, so I am Kristen Canavera. I am a pediatric psychologist at St. Jude in Memphis, Tennessee. I've been here about nine years now and I work with kids um, mostly with cancer, but also hematological disorders like sickle cell. And prior to St. Jude, I was all up and down the East Coast working primarily with kids with anxiety disorders and OCD. So right now at St. Jude, I work in both outpatient and inpatient medical settings. I work most closely with our leukemia and ICU teams, but I work with kids across all the different, all the different cancer clinics. So we see some really, really sick kids and some pretty medically complex kids. Um, I also have some additional training in education and bioethics and health policy. So I am involved with some of our ethics consults here. Mm -hmm. And some of those have involved some of these medically complex patients who are in need of um, psychiatric care. So I wanna talk a little bit about systemic mental health issues um, when it comes to kids with chronic medical conditions or who are medically complex, but might require either residential care or inpatient psychiatric care. This is a big challenge for us here at St. Jude and at many other children's hospitals across the country. I'm sure this might vary by geographic location, but many children's hospitals are really focused on treating the medical needs of children and adolescents. And so there's this big gap in mental health care. And even when you look at some of the top rated children's hospitals in the country, many are not offering inpatient behavioral health services. Um, and so it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge for us. Um, and what happens is we have children or adolescents who need more intensive mental health interventions, which we can't provide here at our hospital. And most of the time, the local psychiatric hospitals are not equipped to manage their medical needs. So they either don't receive the mental health care that they need or it's really suboptimal. 
And we've even had some cases here in Memphis that they've had to be transported several hours away to a facility that could meet both of their medical needs and their psychiatric needs. We've had some cases transferred out of state to nearby states to get both medical and mental health needs met. Mm -hmm. And in, in many cases, especially here at St. Jude, um, we keep them and we do the best we can and we end up putting them on suicide precautions. Um, and we have both psychology and psychiatry consult services here, but we're not a credentialed institution to provide more intensive inpatient psychiatric care. So it's, it's a real challenge for us, and I'm, and I'm sure many of you. And when we do admit them here, because we can't send them to residential care or inpatient psych care, it's sort of all hands on deck when it comes to improve the support services for these, for these kids. Um, and we need as much support as we can get from staff. Um, so it's a big problem. And in many children's hospitals, they don't even have any pediatric psychologists or they don't have a consultation or liaison service. Um, our model here at St. Jude, it's, we're trying to be more preventative. So everyone, fortunately we have this resource, everyone is seen by psychology automatically at various time points in treatment because it's very stressful getting diagnosed with cancer and, and going through all of this. So we see everybody at diagnosis who's newly diagnosed and we see them at other time points also that are particularly stressful, like maybe going to transplant or if they're in the ICU, if they're seen on our pain team or even transitioning off therapy. Um, so I think this is, this is um, hopefully helping and um, preventing some of the mental health crises. We also now have a new behavioral response team where we've trained some of our nursing staff when patients become aggressive or if there are risks um, of harm to staff or others, and they're trained in de-escalation. Um, and, mm -hmm. and we're very fortunate here at St. Jude, we have a very strong psychosocial team and we're very fortunate everybody is offered psychology and they're also offered child life and social work and also spiritual care services. Um, but even at institutions like St. Jude that is well-funded and well-resourced, we, we don't offer intensive mental health services or inpatient psychiatric care. And then kids end up needing to be transferred far away or they stay with us and we just do the best we can. Um, so as far as the role of chaplains, um, I'm a, a firm believer that psychosocial care is certainly just as important, if not more important than some of the medical treatments. And I think for the most part, our medical doctors here and our providers really respect our various psychosocial team members. And I think we're fairly well integrated into the various medical clinics and inpatient units. Um, so we do get to work very closely with our chaplains and our other psychosocial team members. And we also have psychosocial rounds each week, which I think has, has been very helpful and gets everybody on the same page with our patients. And our chaplains here play a huge role in additional support for our patients. So even if the family or the child is not religious per se, they are still a very vital team member and they play a huge role with staff support also. So we have a resilience center here and our chaplains have been a huge part of providing additional support for staff. And they're also involved sometimes with debriefs after stressful patient events. Um, I'll talk a little bit about working with kids who are having acute mental health needs. And I think for chaplains, I can't emphasize enough um, that listening goes a long, 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 long way. Mm -hmm. um, and even if you're not trained as a mental health care provider or licensed like we are in psychology, many times you have the same skills that psychologists mm -hmm. and counselors have. And listening is huge for these kids, for sick kids, and for also for those with mental health needs. And so for kids in the hospital setting, 
you know, they're used to being in medical clinics all day or inpatient, and they're used to interacting with nurses and doctors, and they're incredibly busy. And so psychosocial support, many times, it's, it's beyond the medical providers, and it's really crucial in these medical settings. And there's many times I'm not even necessarily doing a specific evidence-based psychology intervention. Many times I am just listening and providing mm -hmm. support, and chaplains certainly can play that role as well. Um, as for engaging with kids and adolescents when they're waiting for mental health care to be transferred, I think um, it's important to not hesitate to engage with them. I've noticed staff sometimes tends to get anxious themselves when a patient's been identified as one of the psych patients or sort of labeled as one of the suicidal patients. And I think just like you would anyone else, just listen to them. Many times they just need to be heard and listened to. And this could be learning and hearing about their likes, their dislikes, their hobbies, their interests, their experience so far at the hospital, how they've been coping with things. And I think it's okay to defer to the psychologists, you know, if they bring things up that you're not comfortable with or that you don't know how to answer or encourage them to talk more with their psychology team once they meet with them. And I know this is a little bit tricky and this feels a little bit like you want to stay in your lane and it's sort of outside your area of expertise, but I think it is very important and okay to provide support and listen and to get to know them. Um, and I know our next speaker, I think, is going to talk more about talking to kids, and we can certainly talk more about that in the Q&A part. Um, and I think it's um, kind of one, one more point about while they're waiting for more intensive mental health care services, I think it's good to be aware of some of the emotions that can run high during this, this time for them. A lot of times families or parents or caregivers, this might be the first time they're hearing about some of the things that their child discloses. So it might be the first time they're hearing that their teen is suicidal or has been cutting or had a suicide attempt. Yeah. So there's certainly an element of surprise and shock for some of these families. And the kids themselves can be especially anxious, especially if it's their first, first time going to a psych facility or their first time being admitted. Or they can be incredibly angry um, because they don't think they need to right. go or they don't want to go or their parents don't think they need to go. So all kinds of high emotions to be aware of. And I think just like any situation, be, being a listening ear, being a sounding board can be very, very helpful. And this is definitely, it can be a moment of crisis for them. Um, and they just, they need to be heard. Um, so one more thing, and then I'll pass it on. Um, in medical settings, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, kids definitely need some normalcy um, or stability. And whether they're waiting for routine doctor's visit or for a procedure or surgery or they're inpatient or in the ICU, wherever it might be, or waiting for transfer for inpatient site care, kids really do well with normalcy. And we offer here at St. Jude a lot of diversional activities for them. And play is definitely the language of, of, um, for kids. And we don't want them just sitting there doing nothing and just getting more anxious or having their imaginations go wild. And so many times our psychosocial team members are engaging with kids in all sorts of diversional activities. So whether it's arts and crafts or card games or coloring or board games, um, whatever it might be, um, just having some company and somebody to talk to. And those, those activities can really facil facilitate coping and really help normalize a medical experience for them or a transition peri period that can be really scary for them. So I'll stop there and pass it on. Thank you, Kristin. Um, hi, everyone. It's nice to be with you. Um, my name is Anoma Abhiratna, and I am an ordained Episcopal priest um, and um, a chaplain. Um, I have um, I worked at 
Children's Hospital in Boston for several years before I came to Franciscan. And though I had covered almost every unit at Children's Hospital, um, I had actually at that time, um, this was a decade ago, chaplains actually were not permitted onto the mental health unit. Um, the Catholic priest was the only person who was allowed to go in there. And um, if I'm not wrong, it was perhaps only for the sacramental purpose. So I had um, definitely encountered kids uh, who were having mental health issues, but I was not aware of exactly what they were going through. So when I started out um, at Children's, I would sometimes come across kids um, who, you know, as I kind of um, introduce myself and just ask them a little bit about themselves, they would tell me, oh, I'm here because my blood pressure is a little bit low, and so it needs to get taken care of. And so I um, realized that that was kind of a cue for me that something else was going on here. And then I began to also observe that, um, they were um, they had a sitter outside and this led me later to find out that these kids were suicidal and had come to children's emergency room and were waiting for beds so at that time um, my visits were very brief visits um, i was um, in my capacity in my first years i would just stop by to just introduce myself and kind of um, you know, kind of check in with them to see whether they needed some chaplaincy support and explain to them what we kind of did. So I wasn't doing very much, but um, over the years there, I really learned, um, began to learn how to deal with teenagers, particularly. Um, child life was a big help to me. And um, I would say any of the chaplains who do work with child life, get them on board. Um, they are really um, a big help. So basically I'm telling you all of this, that when I came to Franciscan Children's 10 years ago, and my assignment was on one of the two mental health units, I was like, okay, this is not something I have done. I have worked in mental health in my previous profession as a registered nurse. I had done an, a rotation when I was a student and I had taken um, sufficient number of psychology courses. So I knew some basic stuff, but in reality, So I started out with them and I kind of started talking to people on the units, particularly to the nurse managers and the nurses. And I started shadowing um, the mental health counselors, um, started asking a lot of questions and started uh, doing a lot. It's about connection to yourself, to your community, to the larger world, and to the sacred, if you believe in that. And um, then I go on to say, most of all, spirituality is about paying attention to who you are. So with that, I kind of um, make myself, I participate in groups. And one of the things um, that... Uh, spiritual care provides is the meaning making and the connection and particularly with adolescents the whole piece with individuation and integration those are things that 
I think we know about. And uh, those are things that just come up. I keep those in the back of my mind. But most of all, I think um, being an authentic adult and being who you are, because these kids can see right through us. And so they need to find a safe and authentic presence in you. Um, and then be an active listener, communicate respect and value at all times. Um, and one of the things is, you know, um, just spend time with them as Fatima and Kristen both said, just be around them, you'll get to know them. And um, some of the activities that I tend to use, I play cards with them. I've learned every card game that you can name. I play cards with them. Um, I work on puzzles. I do artwork. Um, coloring pages are always good to carry around. Carry journals with you. You can give them to kids. Books. Um, you know, books that kids love. You can have some of those. Movies. Music. Music is a great way these kids will connect to you. So in the in-between space, in the liminal space, these are things that perhaps you could use. And one of the biggest um, things that I have been very fortunate to run on the unit I'm on is spirituality groups. We run them once a week. This is a great opportunity for me to introduce myself and introduce uh, what spirituality means. Um, and this, and these, most of our kids, the majority of our kids are non-religious kids. So I have over the years um, tweaked my groups, my spirituality groups, the themes like belonging, meaning, hope, gratitude, forgiveness, um, grief. These are all themes that we bring up in our groups and we talk about and try to encourage them in these groups and through these groups to provide a sense of agency to these kids, um, you know, support their individual development, encourage their engagement, their imagination, and their self-actualization. We learn with the kids, or at least I learn with the kids. I don't teach. I also promote healthy reflection regarding the health benefits or the lack of, um, of some, you know, some kind of um, uh, the meaning and the purpose or what it is that brings them meaning and hope. So those are some of the things that I want to um, leave with you. And I think the last thing I would like to bring up is, as Christine brought up, um, suicide and mental health affect each and every one of us. So, um, and when it's a pediatric population, this can add another layer. So check in with yourself to make sure how you are on an emotional level. How am I responding to these kids, to these parents? How am I doing with them? Because they're going to see through you if you're not aware of your own feelings. And then, um, I just want to also say that some of the uh, things that might be helpful for chaplains is most hospitals offer trauma-informed care. Uh, be aware, um, you know, uh, be aware of the trauma-informed care and get some basic training. 
get some basic understanding of mental health, mental illness diagnosis, uh, chemical de dependency, and most of all of youth culture dynamics. That is a really important thing that changes so fast and it's really important to get to know. And then also an appreciation of the risks and benefits of youth developmental stages. Um, and let's see, um, one of the things on our unit that I have realized is the importance of structure in these teens and children's lives. It kind of parallels, it, they really, they might struggle against it and struggle against authority, but the structure really does, is very important to them, involve them in their own care and help them to develop any of the goal, their own goals for treatment. Um, and I want to say any chaplain in any visit can potentially cause harm. And I think this is true of any healthcare worker. So um, here are just a few ways, and these come from a, a chaplain colleague called Adam James. Um, he talks about unintentional proselytizing, making the visit about the chaplain, about how the chaplain finds meaning and not the patient's actual needs. Um, and the other piece is by supporting unhealthy theologies or worldviews or well-intentioned or misinformed care. So just be aware of those things. But most of all, remember that as chaplains, uh, we can raise awareness of and normalize the mental and spiritual health issues of this very vulnerable group of people. And so with that, I will turn it over to Michael. Thank you, Anoma, Kristen. Uh, Fatima, this has all been fantastic. Anoma, it's interesting how you ended because that was actually the first question in Q&A was how do we make sure as chaplains that we are not doing more harm than good, um, especially with no mental health treatment training going into it. But right. thank you. I think that what you've given us um, is, is incredibly useful as well. I'll just invite everyone, you can use the Q&A function at the bottom of your, of your screen uh, to ask whatever questions you would like. I have a, a few questions that I'll ask. Uh, and then we can move on from there. We've heard from each of you sort of individually. I'm wondering what you would hope that kind of the, the other side of this interaction ne needs to know in these situations. So Enoma, you as a chaplain, what do you want mental health providers to know? And Fatima and Kristen, what do you want chaplains to know? If, you're, if we're thinking about this as sort of a two-pronged intervention, what do you want each other to know? So I'm happy to go first, if that's okay. Um, so one of the things I like my, the psychiatrist I work with to know is that I work with everybody, as Kristen said, um, whether they have a religious affiliation or not, that each person has a spirituality, which is more about a connection. And so I'm there to support them in any way I can. And also we talk about each of these kids when it's suicide or suicidal ideation going through what we call spiritual distress. 
they're going through a time when they're questioning anything they knew and you know all those deep connections they've had who am i in the midst of all of this it's like what what you know psychologists would say it's an existential crisis they're going through so we can come in really um to be you know to help over there um, to help in this respect as a caring professional. Um, so that is one of the things. The other piece is as a person of color um, and um, so an immigrant, I like to tell um, uh, like psychiatrists, psychologists, um, I also come in handy when there are kids coming from other cultures where I could be of more help um, as a chaplain to try to help translate certain things um, that are happening in the kids' lives um, to the psychiatrists. And this is, you know, when they tend to be of Caucasian background. Um, and I can also be a force of influence um, when, there, when, there are, when there's religious uh, religious themes coming into treatment where this kid has had a bad religious experience and the patients are, uh, the parents continue to want their kids to continue in that um, tradition. And I could be a force there in the sense that I can kind of navigate in between and explain to the parents what these kids are going through. If that makes any sense, that's what I would say. Thank you. I can go next. Um, I would say that I would want chaplains to know that whether it's a kid with mental health issues or a kid that's um, experiencing a physical condition at the bottom of it all, they're, they're kids. Yes. And they're just kids and they like to play and they like to look at their phones or be online or whatever it is developmentally appropriate for them. And so always just keep in mind that you're dealing with a child, that you're dealing with kids. And as Anoma said before, they're really good at seeing right through you. Yep. So the best thing that you can do for yourself is to come in as a genuine and honest human being. Whoever you are, that's who you bring into the room with you. And if you are your genuine self, then they are more likely to present wow. with their genuine selves. If you come in with all of you, then they know that um, you will be able to accept all of them. So don't try to fake it because you immediately will put up a wall that creates um, a sense that you're not a safe person. So just keep in mind that they're kids and bring your whole self into the interaction with them. Yeah, and I think I think along those lines, I was just thinking, um, I was going to say like they're people just like us. like we all have our moments right yes. we all we all have our own mental health issues we all have our problems right. like they're people and i think um there's definitely sort of an element of um anxiety about working with with like the the crazy patient the mental health patients the psych patients and I think we all sort of accidentally label them, but I know in our setting, the, the staff really are hesitant to talk to them and it's sort of, oh, let's wait till the psychologist sees them. But I think many times we need to be acting on this before they get to this crisis, before they get to these, you know, suicidal moments and moments of self-harm. And I think it, like we all have a role in this. So it's not just, not just the psychologist because there will never be 
enough psychologists to go around and enough counselors and enough psychiatrists, I think it starts with all of this. I think it's the social workers, it's the parents, it's the school teachers, it's the chaplains, it's, it's the child life specialists. I think it's everybody. I think it's everybody listening to these kids. And I think in that moment, it's, you know, don't hesitate to engage with them and don't hesitate to talk to them. Um, because like she said, they're kids, they're kids. They want to talk, they want to play. Um, so don't hesitate to engage with them and talk with them. I think this point of destigmatizing is so important because especially for youth, there is still this notion that if, if you are a person that has a mental health need, then you are outside of the norm and there is something wrong with you. When, when staff are hesitant to engage any of that, it just reinforces that, right? I can't talk about this until the psychologist shows up or until the chaplain shows up. Um, that's, that, can be, that can be so damaging. Um, Petra Vandewater asked a question here, and Petra, I hope you don't mind, I'm gonna broaden it a little bit. Her question specifically is about supporting kids um, who may be grappling with issues of sexuality and there is an issue with their parents with that. I think we can even broaden that to say, what can chaplains do if the mental health needs of, of the patient, the child or the adolescent are causing family dynamics where it's not just they're wrestling with it, they're on their own, but mom and dad are saying this is a problem too. What, what should a chaplain, I'm sorry, not a problem, but there's something wrong with them, right? So what is a chaplain to do in that situation when you're kind of between the family and the patient? I feel like that's where I live my life, right in the in-between. And we see this all the time with um, individuals who identify as being part of the LGBTQIA plus population and parents who are like, yeah, no. I mean, this literally just happened last week. We had a family come in and um, the parents didn't mention at all that there were any issues. And this kid comes in who's clearly transgender is using a different name and we're like, oh, okay. And um, they're, the kid is fine. The kid is fine. Other than they have parents that don't accept their sexuality. There are no other mental health issues. And so, yeah, we often live in the in-between and it's really about helping each individual understand the other's perspective. Sometimes if, if parents can understand where their child is coming from, not that they're part of a fad or that they're part of a craze or that this is something that they're going to grow out of, but just really helping to understand and to see their child and at least respect what the child wants to be called. On the very, at the very basic, if we can get to that point, that's a huge hurdle. Agreeing on pronouns, right? So when I, you can see on my screen, I label my pronouns. That's to make it clear that I am open when I meet individuals. I ask them, what are your preferred pronouns? I think um, as we go on with time, that's going to be more of a common and expected thing. I actually had a patient who met me for the first time and asked me what my pronouns were. And I was like, hey, okay. So I think this is going to be more normative in terms of people just being clear about what's your pronouns. And if we ask everyone that no one ever feels left out about it. And then for the parents, helping them understand that their child is hurting. And for the kids to understand that your parent is not necessarily trying to be an a-hole I mean maybe they are but um that your parent loves you and that 
they just need to understand and there's a gap in understanding. And if we can close that gap um, by using whatever tools are in our toolbox, I think that goes a long way. And again, you don't have to be a licensed clinician to do this, to be able to say, hey, your, your child is hurting and I, I heard this and um, this might be a difficult conversation to have, but I wanted to share this with you because it seemed really important to them. I don't know if you know more, Kristen, have others that you would add to that. Um, certainly on our unit now, there's actually, as you go in, we have the kids' names because also pronouns can change. So we have their kids, the names that they want to use and the pronouns listed. And it's something I check before I go onto the unit. Pronouns are so important to kids. And one of the things I've learned to do is if I make a mistake, I will apologize right away. This is one of the ways they know and they can see right through it. Um, and the other uh, thing is, I think, you know, as how do we destigmatize this whole, this, this whole piece? I'm sorry, I'm going off the question, but the whole piece about talking to parents separately, I don't work too much with parents, but certainly giving the kids all the support they need. And then when I do see the parents talking to them, but you know, keeping that separate, but also as Fatima said, I don't have anything to add to what she said, but to just let parents know, you know, your child is having a hard time right now. And this is something real they're going through. So that's what I would add. I do run a diversity group on the unit, which is a big hit. Um, this is a group where the kids come and are able to talk about all these issues very openly. And um, it's a great um, discussion that they have. So that's, that's something that they feel. And they will keep saying the two topics that really come up are the stigma around mental health. And why can't even my parents or my relatives understand that I'm sick, that this is, this is real. So I think this is the piece about trying to get it through to them, but acknowledging to the kids, validating them, trying to understand and have compassion on them is one of our huge, the huge things that chaplains can do to see where the kid is right now. So that's all I would put. Christian, I'm sorry. Yep. No, that's okay. I think, um, I think I'll just add with the LGBT um, question. It's, um, I'm in the South and I'm in the deep South and we have a lot of, um, a lot of differing opinions about that and a lot of conflict about that. And I think I've seen some patients just, they've really varied on how much they share with their parents and how much they share with their family. And it really is, they, they have not come out and it's still a big secret and there's tremendous fear of rejection and harm and I'll be rejected by my family I'll be rejected by my church and my whole community and they're just not there yet with openly talking about it and there's certainly a lot of variation with that um, but um, it just it breaks my heart and it's really really sad but but I think we are still at that place with a lot of the teens um, in my area some have been very open about it um, but I think we have a ways to go A little related to this has to do with with just the the general interaction depending on who is in the room and depending on the specific situation the mental health needs of, of the patient so linda has this question what should a chaplain do if a sitter is present 
Should you ask them to leave so you can speak alone? What if it's a parent or guardian? Sometimes kids won't open up if someone else is there. So when there is a third party in the room, how do you read the room and decide how to proceed? My first instinct is to always check with nursing. So if you're in an inpatient setting, um, I think it could be potentially dangerous to automatically dismiss a sitter, especially if you don't know the circumstances of why that sitter is there. So I would be very cautious of walking into a room and just asking the person in there to leave without having that background information. Um, so my rule of thumb is when I'm not sure, I don't know the situation, I go check in with nursing and sort of get that initial information, whether it's a parent or a caregiver or a sitter, sort of being like, hey, I want to walk into the room and I know there's mom is in there, dad's in there. Do you have any advice for how to navigate that situation? More than likely that nurse has been in that room a thousand times already and can give you a little bit of guidance. So that's my advice. Yeah, and I think um, I'm usually the one that's requesting the sitter. And so I kind of know why they're there already and I've already talked with them. But these, at least in our setting, patients are really used to staff coming in and out. And when they're inpatient, they're used to multiple multiple people coming in and out. Um, but there's many times I'll kick them out. So I've definitely, I had a suicidal patient this week and I kicked the sitter out and said, we need some alone time um, and then had the sitter come back in the room. So I definitely think it's, I think it might be one of those reading the room, figuring it out. And it's maybe not sort of one size fits all depending on the situation. There's definitely some risk assessments I've done where there's been multiple team members there and that can be more stressful for a patient um, but sometimes psychiatry is with me when we're doing this and so they're used to having the psychiatrist and the psych fellow or maybe there's um, another team member involved um, and it's tricky and it's tricky too with reading the parents and how much to involve the parents with this because a lot of times teens haven't haven't shared and disclosed it all yet with their parents um, so it's definitely very sensitive things to be talking about, um, but I do think it's okay. I think though, for a setting where you're not familiar with why the sitter is there, I think definitely check. I mean, we've definitely had sitters present and security present when there's concerns with aggression sometimes and not necessarily a suicide issue and it's more of an aggression issue. Um, and in those cases, we don't wanna be kicking out security or the sitter because we wanna make sure everybody is safe, so. All I can add to that is that I don't, I'm on a locked unit, so we usually don't have parents present, nor do we have um, um, sitters present. And for me, it's usually getting the kids individually, um, other than in group settings. But when they, there are certain topics they like to talk to me alone about. So it's, that's, it doesn't come up. Um, but I would, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a nurse myself, and so I would always say check with the nurses or whoever's with the patient 24-7, um, you know, the caregiver there would be the person to check with and see if, as, as everybody has said, so. Paul has a really great question on how these teams are sort of composed. He says, I work as a pediatric mental health chaplain, but I have challenges in helping our organization and treatment teams see that chaplains have a significant integrated role in providing patient care. How have you developed ways to have chaplains be a regular part in treatment rounds or meetings and not just someone that's called in once in a while when a kid has a spiritual issue? Um, so, um, so interestingly, so I have been on the unit that I'm in um, 
currently, this is my 10th year there. It's taken time. Um, I think like most places, chaplains have to continually um, keep, you know, showing, showing the other stuff and just advocate um, teaching is very important. We've started actually um, doing kind of a webinar where we are teaching um, like a, an orientation for staff and we're trying to expand that and not just to nurses and mental health staff, but also to the interns who are starting now, the psych interns, as well as I just did a very quick presentation with the psych interns starting. Um, also, um, getting to know. So I just, you know, um, I started off with another colleague and we just started taking very small steps by just showing up places and then integrating ourselves. So I think it's taken a long time and we are still not fully integrated. We, I still to this day have not gotten a referral from one of the psychiatrists on the unit. Um, it's by reading notes that um, often I find places where I can um, can help. The social workers re very recently have gotten me involved. They're a new group and I've been going to rounds once a week. So um, it takes time. So be patient is what I can tell you and keep educating people every opportunity you get, um, members on your team, because we are essential. And um, we, we play a, we have a role there too, as we can't do this alone. We do it with, with the psychologists as a team. I would say if you're really um, struggling to get your administrators on board, research is always a really good place to start. Administrators talk dollars and cents. And, um, you know, it's been similar to trying to get psychology and other psychosocial um, roles integrated in a complete medical setting. It's like, what are you going to do for us? How are you going to make my job easier? Or how are you going to save me money? And I, I really do think that the value that chaplaincy brings in terms of adding to the psychosocial team, being able to um, create a niche that no other provider can really fill, I think is really important. And so being able to talk about the benefits to the psychosocial team, talking about the benefits when children are supported um, emotionally, then their medical outcomes are better. When you're talking about the OR, kids go in, how they come out how they go in and so really making sure that they're in the healthiest mind state being able to pull that literature together to show psychosocial support including chaplaincy is critical for the overall well-being of a child um, and their health and I think that will start to help and turn the minds but then also I think complete integration is is really key I think being you know having the chaplain as part of the team where they go to rounds they get all the admission packets they get the notes they have access to the charts just like any other provider does they get consulted at the beginning just like any other provider does so when PT speech OT is going in and doing their thing pastoral care or the chaplaincy is going in and doing theirs as well and I think having that full integration where there there's no difference um, but that's going to take changing the idea that mental health is separate from physical health. And so I would start there. And I'll just I'll just add to this. I, I completely agree with all of their points. And I think another thing to keep in mind is 
when pitching it to administration, the benefits for staff also. And I know there's yes. a lot of focus. There's so much focus right now on burnout and resiliency of staff, especially during this COVID time. And chaplains have a huge, huge, huge role with staff support. Um, so I know it's a little bit unrelated to the question, but I think that's also such a niche that, that um, chaplains can, can play in a hospital. Right, and I just want to add to that, definitely, you know, after there's been a crisis, the equivalent of a code blue that we may have on our unit, checking in with staff or, you know, definitely it's it's very helpful um, that we, I have I didn't talk at all about staff support, but that's a huge piece of work chaplains do. Um, so I second or third that, whatever, thank you. Well, thank you all very much. This has been a wonderful discussion. I've gotten a couple of messages thanking you for your for your time here uh, and your wisdom. It's been so enlightening, and I think that uh, a lot of chaplains are dealing with this, and it's helpful to have some concrete interventions that can be made. Um, I just want to remind everyone this has been recorded, and so if you came in late, don't worry. You'll get uh, a full a link to the full recording here in the next couple of days. I want to thank our sponsors for this webinar, the Pediatric Chaplains Network. Thank you for your support. Everyone have a great rest of your day and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.